0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from the Sovereignty Sermons of uh, Charles Spurgeon. This one's about providence. And he's anticipating that uh, people aren't going to like his ideas about providence. In fact, they might even think he's a fatalist. That's what he says here. I hear one say, Well, sir, you seem to be a fatalist. No, far from it. There is just this difference between fate. And providence. Fate is blind. Providence has eyes. Fate is blind, a thing that must be. It's just a bow shot from an arrow that must fly onward but hath no target. Not so providence. Providence is full of eyes. There's a design in everything and an end to be answered. All things are working together and working together for good. They are not done because they must be done, but they are done because there is some reason for it. It's not only that the thing is, and because it must be, but the thing is because it is right it should be. God hath not arbitrarily marked out the world's history. He had an eye to the great architecture of perfection when he marked all the aisles of history, placed all the pillars of events in the building of time. There's another thing that we have to recollect also, which will strike us perhaps more than the smallness of things. The minuteness of providence may be seen in the fact that even the thoughts of men are under God's hand. Now, thoughts are things which generally escape our attention when we speak of providence. But how much may depend upon a thought? Oftentimes a monarch has had a thought which has cost a nation many a bloody battle. Sometimes a good man has had a thought, which has been the means of rescuing multitudes from hell and bearing thousands safely to heaven. Beyond a doubt, every imagination, every passing thought, every conception that is only born to die is under the hand of God. And in turning over the page of history, you will often be struck when you see how great a thing has been brought about by an idle word. They depend upon it, then, that the will of man, the thought of man, the desire of man, every purpose of man, is immediately under the hand of God. Take an instance Jesus Christ is to be born at Bethlehem. His mother is living at Nazareth. Now, he'll be born there to a dead certainty. No, not so. Caesar takes a whim into his head. All the world shall be taxed. And he will have all of them go to their own city. What necessity for that? Stupid idea of Caesar's? If he had had a parliament like we do, they would have voted against him. They would have said, Why make all the people go to their own peculiar city to the census? Take the census where they live. That will be abundantly sufficient. No, he says, it is my will... And Caesar cannot be opposed. Uh, Some think Caesar was mad. And God knows what he means to do with Caesar. Uh, Mary, great with child, must take a laborious journey to Bethlehem. And there is her child born in a manger. We should not have had the prophecy fulfilled that Christ should be born at Bethlehem. And our very faith in the Messiah might have been shaken if it had not been for that Whim of Caesar's, so that even the will of man, the tyranny, the despotism of the tyrant, is in the hand of God, and he turneth it whithersoever he pleaseth to work his own will. Gathering up all our heads into one short statement, it is our firm belief that he who wings an angel guides a sparrow. We believe that he who supports the dignity of his throne amidst the splendors of heaven maintains it also in the depths of the dark sea. We believe that there is nothing above, beneath, around, which is not according to the determination of his own counsel and will. While we are not fatalists, we do most truly and sternly hold the doctrine that God hath decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass, and that he overruleth all these things for his own glory and good. So that with Martin Luther we can say, He everywhere hath sway, and all things serve his might. His every act pure blessing is, his path unsullied light. The second point is the kind consideration of God in taking care of his people. In reading the text I thought, There's better care taken of me than I could ever take of myself. Oh, you all take care of yourselves to some extent, but which of you ever took so much care of himself as to count the hairs of his head? But God will not only protect our limbs, but even the excrescence of hair is to be seen after. And and how much this excels all the care of our tenderest friends. Look at the mother, how careful she is. If her child has a little cough, she notices it. The slightest weakness is sure to be observed. She has watched all its motions anxiously to see whether it walked right, whether all its limbs were sound, and whether it had the use of all its powers and perfection. But she's never thought of numbering the hairs of her child's head, and the absence of one or two of them would give her no great concern. But our God is more careful of us, even than a mother with her child, so careful that he numbers. The hairs of our head. How safe are we then beneath the hand of God? However, uh, leaving the figure, let us again notice the kind guardian care which God exerts over his people in the way of providence. I've often been struck with the providence of God in keeping his people alive before they were converted. How many are there who would have been in hell at this hour? if some special providence had not kept them alive until the time of their conversion. I remember mentioning this in in company, and almost every person in the room had some half-miracle to tell uh, concerning his own deliverance before conversion. One gentleman, I remember, was a sporting man, who afterwards became an eminent Christian. He told me that a, a little time before his conversion he was shooting, and his gun burst in four pieces which stood upright in the earth as near as possible in the exact form of a square, having been driven nearly a foot into the ground, while he stood there unharmed and quite safe, having scarcely felt the shock. I was noticing in Hervey's works one day a very pretty thought on this subject. He says two persons who had been hunting together in the day slept together the following night. One of them was renewing the pursuit in his dream, and having run the whole circle of the chase, came at last to the fall of the stag. Upon this he cries out with a determined ardor, I'll kill him! I'll kill him! And immediately feels for the knife, which he carried in his pocket. His companion happening to awake, and observing what passed, leaped from the bed, being secure from danger, and the moon shining in the room, he stood to view the event when, to his inexpressible surprise, the infatuated sportsman gave several deadly stabs in the very place where a moment before the throat and the life of his friend lay. This I mention as a proof that nothing hinders us even from being assassins of others or murderers of ourselves amidst the mad sallies of sleep Only the preventing care of our Heavenly Father. How wonderful the providence of God with regard to Christian people in keeping them out of temptation. I have often noticed this fact, and I believe you are able to confirm it, that there are times when, if a temptation should come, you would be overtaken by it. But the temptation does not come. And at other times, when the temptation comes, you have supernatural strength to resist it. Yes, the best Christian in the world will tell you that such is still the strength of his lust, that there are moments when if the object were presented to him, he would certainly fall into the commission of a foul sin. But then the object is not there, or there is no opportunity of committing the sin. At another time, when we have no desire toward that particular sin. In fact, we feel an aversion to it, or even incapable of it. Strange it is, but many a man's character has been saved by providence. The best man that ever lived, little knows how much he owes for preservation to the providence as well as to the grace of God. How marvelously, too, has providence arranged all our places I cannot but recur to my own personal history, for, after all, we are obliged to speak more of what we know of ourselves, as matters of fact, than of others. I shall always regard the fact of my being here today as a remarkable instance of providence. I should not have occupied this hall, probably, and and been blessed of God in preaching to multitudes, if it had not been for what I considered an untoward accident. I should have been at this time studying in college instead of preaching here, but for a singular circumstance which happened. I had agreed to go to college. The tutor had come to see me, and I went to see him at the house of a mutual friend. I was shown by the servant into one drawing room in the house. He was shown into another. He sat and waited for me two hours. I sat and waited for him two hours. Well, he could wait no longer and went away thinking I had not treated him well. I went away and thought that he had not treated me well. As I went away, this text came into my mind. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. So I wrote to say that I must positively decline. I was happy enough amongst my own country people, and I got on very well in preaching, and I did not care to go to college. Well, I have now had four years of labor, but speaking after the manner of men, those who have been saved during that time would not have been saved, by my instrumentality at any rate, if it had not been for the remarkable providence, turning the whole tenor of my thoughts and putting things into a new track. You have often had strange accidents like that. When you have resolved to do a thing, you could not do it anyhow. It was it was quite impossible. God turned you another way and proved that providence is indeed the master of all human events. And how good, too, has God been in providence to some of you in providing your daily bread? It is remarkable how a little poverty makes a person believe in providence, especially if he's helped through it. If a person has to live from hand to mouth, when day by day the manna falls, he begins to think there is a providence then. The gentleman who sows his broad acres, reaps his wheat, puts it into his barn, or takes his regular income, gets on so nicely that he can do without providence. He doesn't care a bit about it. The rents of his houses all come in, and his money in the 3% 3% is quite safe. What does he want with Providence? But the poor man who has to work at day labor and sometimes runs very short, and just then happens to meet with somebody who gives him precisely what he wants, he exclaims, Well, I know there is a Providence. I cannot help believing it. These things could not have come by chance. Well, now in conclusion, uh, brethren, sisters, if these things be so, if the hairs of our head are all numbered, and if providence provides for his people all things necessary for this life and godliness, and arranges everything with infinite and unerring wisdom, what manner of persons ought we to be? When in the first place we ought to be a bold race of people, what have we to fear? Another man looks up, and if he sees a lightning flash, he trembles at its mysterious power. We believe it has its predestined path. We may stand and contemplate it, although we would not presumptuously expose ourselves to it, yet we can confide in our God in the midst of a storm. We're out at sea. Men shake because they think that it's all chance. We, however, are seeing an order in the waves. We hear a music in the winds. It is for us to be peaceful and calm. To other men, the tempest is a fearful thing. We believe the tempest is in the hand of God. Why should we shake? Why should we quiver? In all convulsions of the world, in all temporal distress and danger, it is for us to stand calm and collected, looking boldly on. Our confidence should be very much the same in comparison with a man who is not a believer in providence, as the confidence of some, uh, some learned surgeon, but yet never shudders at it, while the ignorant peasant, who has never seen anything so wonderful, is alarmed and fearful, and even thinks that evil spirits are at work. And we are to say, and let others say what they please, I know God is here, and I am his child, and this is all working for my good. Therefore will not I fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Especially may I address this remark to timid people. There are some of you who are frightened at every little thing. Oh, if if you could but believe that God manages all, why, you would not be screaming because your husband is not home when there's a, a little thunder and lightning or because there's a mouse in the parlor, or because there's a a great tree blown down in the garden. There's no necessity you should believe that your brother-in-law, who has gone to Australia, was wrecked because there was a storm when he was at sea. There's no need for you to imagine that your son in the army was necessarily killed because he happened to be before luck now. Or or if you think the thing necessary, uh, still as a believer in God's providence, you should just stand and say that God has done it, and it is yours to resign all things into his hands. And I may say to those of you who also who have been bereaved, if you believe in providence, you may grieve, but your grief must not be excessive. I remember at a funeral of a friend a pretty parable, which I have told you before, I will tell again. There was much weeping on account of the loss of a loved one. And the minister put it thus. He said, suppose you are a gardener employed by another. It's not your garden, but you are called upon to tend it. And you have your wages paid you. You've taken great care with a certain number of roses. You've trained them up, and there they are, blooming in their beauty. You pride yourself upon them. You come one morning into the garden, and you find that the best rose has been taken away. You're angry. You go to your fellow servants and charge them with having taken the rose. They will declare they had nothing at all to do with it. One says, I saw the master walking here this morning. I, I think he took it. Is the gardener angry then? Oh no. At once he says, I'm happy that my rose should have been so fair as to attract the attention of the master. It is his own. He had taken it. Let him do what seemeth him good. It is even so with your friends. They wither not by chance. The grave is not filled by accident. Men die according to God's will. Your child is gone, but the master took it. Your husband is gone. Your wife is buried. The master took them. Thank him that he let you have the pleasure of caring for them and tending them while they were here. And thank him that... As he gave, he himself has taken away. If others had done it, you would have had the cause to be angry, but the Lord has done it. Can you then murmur? Will you not say, Thee at all times will I bless, having thee I all possess? How can I bereave it be, since I cannot part with thee? And pardon me when I say finally that I think this doctrine, if fully believed, ought to keep us always in an equable frame of mind. One of the things we most need is to have our equilibrium always kept up. Sometimes we are elated. If I ever find myself elated, I know what is coming. I know that I shall be depressed in a very few hours. If the balance goes too much up, it is sure to come down again. The happiest state of mind is to be always on the equilibrium. If good things come, thank God for them, but do not set your heart upon them. If good things go, thank God that he has taken them himself, and still bless his name. Bear all. He who feels that everything cometh to pass according to God's will hath a great mainstay to his soul. He need not be shaken to and fro by every wind that bloweth. For he is fast bound, so that he need not move. This is an anchor cast into the sea. While other things are drifting far away, he can ride calmly through. Strive, dear friends, to believe this and maintain as the consequence of it that continual calm and peace which renders life so happy. Do not get fearing ills that may come tomorrow. Either they will not come or else they will bring good with them. If you have evils today... Do not multiply them by fearing those of tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Oh, I would to God that some of you who are full of care and anxiety could be delivered from it by a belief in providence. And when you once get into that quiet frame, which this doctrine engenders, you'll be prepared for those higher exercises of communion and fellowship with Christ, to which Distracting care is ever a fearful detriment, if not an entire preventive. But as for you who fear not God, remember, the stones of the field are in league against you. The heavens cry to the earth, and the earth answereth to the heavens for vengeance upon you on account of your sins. For you there is nothing good. Everything is in rebellion against you. Oh, that God might bring you into peace with him, and then you would be at rest with all beside. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The Lord bless you in this. For Jesus' sake. Amen. That's from the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 4, read as always with permission. Well, there's another message on providence. I think we just may go on to that next time, rather than go right back to Ezekiel, for those of you who are with me in real time, which is May the 18th, 2021. Um, Haven't received the book yet. I, I have the document. I can read from it. But I think I need some time here because I'm discovering that Ezekiel part five, and I figured this, is going to take a little while. <laughs> I just hit chapter forty, and if you've ever hit chapter forty of your read-through in the Bible, chapter forty of Ezekiel is uh, interesting, to say the least. I'm uh, dealing with it, so give me some time. Let's do, let's do another Spurgeon couple of days. The last one of this series, by the way, I believe, Providence as seen in the book of Esther. Okay, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing. We get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.